especially as so many people just joined the church and and it's exciting to see what God's doing, uh, especially as so many people just joined the church and committed their lives to not only Christ, but to, uh, to his church. What a blessing that he makes us a part of his family. And it's an honor to be able to now take us to the Lord together. Uh, let me go to the Lord in prayer as we turn to Philippians 4. Gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word. Every bit of it really is inspired by you, breathed out by you, and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we, your people, may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so would it have its effect upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Let's turn to God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger Abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thanks be to God for his inspired and errant and therefore authoritative word. Uh, Well, Franny Crosby was a great hymn writer in the 19th century. And she wrote over 8,000 hymns, which is remarkable to think about. She wrote, to God be the glory, blessed assurance, all the way my Savior leads me. But when she was six years old... She had an eye infection, and the local doctor was away, and there was, and there was someone either passing through or, or something like that that came and said that he could help her. And there was a tradition that, that if herbs were heated up and put on the eyes, they could draw the infection out. And so they did this with, with Fanny. And instead of drawing the infection out, the heat of the herbs scarred her eyes and burned them and left her blind for life at six weeks old. And she would go on, because of this, to have to really dwell upon her memory, her mind, her cognitive abilities. She would memorize the entire Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. She would memorize all of Proverbs. She would memorize the Psalms. She would memorize the Gospels and more. And um, Robert Morgan in his book, Then Sings My Soul, talks about how she was once asked later in life, she lived into her 80s, I think, she was asked about this experience. And she said this, don't blame the doctor. He's probably by this time passed away. But if I could meet him, I would tell him that he unwittingly did me the greatest favor in all of the world. Fanny Crosby had learned the secret. She'd learned the secret of contentment in Christ in all of her situations. And I think for us, in this passage this morning, the Lord wants the same. He wants us to learn the secret of contentment in Christ Jesus. So let's think first here about an occasion for contentment. An occasion for contentment. Here in verses 10 and 11, let me give us a little bit of background first. Paul loves this church. He's founded this church. And now he's doing what he often does, and he's writing back to this church to encourage it to excel in the Lord. There's very few issues going on with the church, 
But Paul now finds himself in a precarious situation himself. He's, he's either in prison in Rome or he's in prison in Caesarea. But there can be no mistake that it's clear that he's in prison for Christ. In, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says that the whole Praetorian Guard has heard about the gospel because he's in chains for Christ. He's probably actually on house arrest, chained to a Praetorian Guard, sort of a Navy SEAL, 24-7. And they're having to hear him now talk about Jesus every moment and the gospel is going forth mightily and they realize he's here for Christ. It's the only thing he's ever done wrong is love Christ. But he has this great relationship with the church. He founded it. He loves it. He, he writes about very few issues other than some disunity within the church. It's a really sweet, lovely letter. But the Philippians had cared deeply for Paul as well. And because of this, they had wanted to send him some gifts. They wanted to encourage him in his, in his discomfort, in his imprisonment. But for some reason, they had been hindered from doing this. Finally, they're able to send Epaphroditus, but Epaphroditus gets sick on the way. And so Paul cares for this church. He's worried about how they might feel, about how they might hear about Epaphroditus. And he sends Epaphroditus back with this letter and to say thank you and to let them know Epaphroditus as well. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You wanted to bless me, but you just couldn't quite find the way to do that. You finally sent Epaphroditus. But here's what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's That's sort of a funny way of saying thank you for a gift, isn't it? You sent a gift, thank you, but I really didn't need it. Right, sort of like on Christmas, if you gave your kids some gifts and they said, thanks, mom, thanks, dad, but I, I, I got to be honest, I really don't need this. We would think they've gone crazy. But what Paul wants to do is he wants to use this gift as a teachable moment. We've all had teachable moments in our lives. I have, uh, my, my in-laws live in a, a farm up in Seymour. And if, if you drove up through there, you would think no one's ever inhabited these locations, but they inhabit it way up in the mountains. And my father-in-law is a retired nuclear engineer. And so now he's taken to farming, he's taken to animals, he's got some roosters. I was blown away by hearing these roosters out here this morning. He's got some chickens, but the problem with chickens is that raccoons and foxes love them too. And so he's had to, he's had to protect this chicken coop, and he's done it with all the different wirings, but most of all, he's done it with electricity. And when a nuclear engineer protects chickens with electricity, it becomes more like a death trap. Well, we have, there's nine grandchildren amongst his children. And so every time we go up there, he says, hey, here's how you take the electricity off. Make sure you don't touch the electricity or you'll get shocked. You won't enjoy that. Eight out of nine have not heeded that advice. My four, I think, have not heeded that advice multiple times. There's been one. The really smart one amongst us has never been electrocuted. But it's a teachable moment. Every time it happens, we're able to say, okay, well, here's what electricity is. Here's what it does when it touches your body. Let's learn from this and maybe not do this again. It's a teachable moment. Paul wants to teach the Philippians something about contentment. Contentment wasn't strange in their ears. The Stoics loved contentment. It was one of their highest values. They talked about it. They wrote about it. But the Stoic view of contentment was this idea of ridding ourselves of all desire. If I can get rid of all desire, I can be content. Ridding ourselves of all emotions, particularly when we get hurt. It it was this 
freeing oneself from the world entirely. In other words, to the Stoics, contentment was actually self-sufficiency. I am completely sufficient within myself. I need no one. I feel nothing. One, uh, Bill Barclay put it this way, that a Stoic once wrote this, begin with a cup and if it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or pet dog and if anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself and if you're hurt or injured, say, I don't care. And if you go long enough and hard enough, you'll come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. That's Stoicism. Imagine going home today and your father is in the yard holding your dog who's been hit by a car. I once shared this illustration and someone came up to me weeping because their dog had died that weekend. So, Lord willing, that has not happened here this morning. And the daughter comes running out and says, Dad, what happened? And, And the dad says, well, the dog just got hit by the car. And if you're mature, you won't care. It's silly. Until we think about how we try to grin and bear it through life. Through our own pain and suffering. I'll just, I'll just tough it out. To shrink the fact that all of a sudden all of our family members are angry about something and there's conflict every time we have a meal together. Through the loss of a loved one. And, and we buy into that modern worldview that says, no, 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 I'm all good. Everything's good. Motto of our culture. Have it all together and need no one. It's self-sufficiency. It's pretending that the pain of the world doesn't actually crush us. Except what we tend to do is we suppress it, suppress it, suppress it until it blows up in anger. And anger is an interesting thing because anger is, is a loud emotion. It's like a dashboard light on a car that keeps going off and you don't get out and change the bulb. Fix the problem. Fix the null post. No, rather instead, you look under the hood and you say, something's wrong with the engine. It's pointing to something. And you got to go fix it. But over the last couple years, everyone's been angry about something. And anger often points to something deeper, which is fear. Anger often comes out of a place of fear. That something that I love is being pushed in on. Something that I love is being taken from me. And I'm afraid of that. And so I lash out in anger. But Paul has a different step for us. He says, no, 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 no. Don't give in to this self-sufficiency worldview. Don't alleviate all emotion from your life. Don't try to rid yourself of all desire and act like you don't hurt. But rather, learn the secret of contentment. And so firstly, he says that every situation in our lives is an occasion for that. It's an occasion for contentment. But secondly, in 12 and 13, he teaches us the secret of true contentment. The secret of true contentment. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have had the privilege the last few years of coaching Little League Baseball, maybe for about the last six years or so. And a couple years ago, we moved from maybe a less intense league to a little bit more intense league. And uh, my team started one and five. And 
I, I was a little bit discouraged. The kids were discouraged, but the dads were despondent, completely despondent. And I began to see that my response was becoming, you know, if we could just win a game, then I'd be happy and the dads would be satisfied. It had nothing to do with the kids. I'd be happy and the dads would be satisfied. And in the midst of sort of our lowest moment, I remember a dad calling me and he said, you know, I think some of us just want more for our kids. What he meant was, I think we want you to start winning. That would make us happy. And I wonder, what if I said to him, you know what? What I'm really trying to teach your kids is the secret, contentment. I'm trying to teach them contentment. Win or lose, I want them to learn contentment. No one would be okay with that. Everyone would say, well, that, okay, well, that sounds like a fine thing, but can you win some games? That's what we actually care about. That's what we actually think will make them and, and us, by extension, happy. What we say is, if I have plenty, if I have abundance, if I have entertainment, if I have all of my personal freedoms, if I have my candidate in office, if I have my way in church, if I have success, if I have lots of money and vacation at will, if I have happy kids and lots of friends and lots of social events and a spouse who does what I want and a little league team that wins some games, then, then I'll be happy. And Paul says, no, you know what? When you pursue contentment that way, it actually always remains outside of your grasp. You can never get to it. It's never at the end of that rope. Instead, contentment is a secret that comes to us not in the way that the world offers it. You know, it's interesting. The next verse here, verse 13, is probably one of the most popular verses in our culture today. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's tattooed on your favorite athlete's arm. It's, it's on the eye black of your favorite quarterback. It's, it's that verse that the athlete says, this means that when I'm down four with 30 seconds to play on the five-yard line, I can throw a touchdown and win the Super Bowl. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But remember where Paul is. He's chained to a Praetorian guard, to a Navy SEAL type person, 24-7. He's lost all the luxuries of this world. He has no success at his grasp. He's thinking that there's a really good chance he's going to die. And I doubt he's thinking, Lord, that's a great verse. That's a good one. That's going to help the modern-day 21st century athlete crush it on the ball field. I don't think that's what's actually going through his mind. No, because for him, contentment is not self-satisfaction like we think it is. And it's not self-sufficiency like the Stoics thought it was. It's not a death to feeling highs and lows and numbing out. It's not inactivity and passivity on the one hand. It's not striving on the other hand. Rather, for Paul, and here's the secret, for Paul, contentment is Christ-sufficiency. It's Christ's sufficiency. And the secret is that it comes more and more when we find our joy in being in Christ Jesus. That'd actually be a great way to translate this last verse. I can do all things through him. The Greek is, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And why does that matter? Because that's Paul's favorite way of describing what it means to be a Christian. He's, he said it right before this in chapter 1, that he's in chains for Christ. Well, really what he said in the Greek is he's in chains in Christ. 
He doesn't describe a Christian as a Christian. He doesn't describe a Christian as a follower of the way like Luke does in Acts. Rather, his favorite way of describing what it means to be a Christian is to say that you are in him, you are in the beloved, you are in Christ Jesus. That you and I, in faith in Christ, are in union and communion with Christ. And that's the core of our identity for the rest of our lives and all eternity. That we're united with him in his perfect life as if we lived a perfect life. Isn't that good news? We're united with him in his death on the cross as if when he went to that cross, he took all of our sins upon him, and he did. We're united with him in his resurrection unto life as if now we have new life. We're united with him, Paul says in Colossians 1, in the heavenly places even now, though our earthly existence is here. Our real identity is actually up there with him. And when he returns... We'll be united with him in glory forever. That's actually who we are. That's the secret to contentment. is to know who you actually are. To know this, that when you're in Christ Jesus, if you have all the abundance that this world offers, it's nothing compared to Christ. And when you're in Christ Jesus, if you lose all the luxuries that this world offers, you still have Christ and therefore you have everything. To be in Christ Jesus is to be everything. To be in Christ Jesus, to be growing in grace, is everything. Alec Motier, a famous commentator, says this about contentment. Paul rescued this world and made it mean the restful contentment of the Christian, the opposite of the desire for more. Paul does this often. I love this about him. He'll take a, he'll take a pagan world, word like contentment that the Stoics love He'll steal it back and say, no, all truth's ours. We have the right on truth. And he'll fill it up with Christian and gospel, and then he'll send it off like a balloon in hot air, in, in midair. And that's what he does with contentment. He, he, he snags it away, he fills it up with the restful contentment, the opposite of the desire for more. Some of us are so restless that it's hard to even be here this morning. Or we're so anxious. We're so frustrated and dissatisfied. And the psalmist says in Psalm 127, it's in vain that you rise up early. It's in vain that you go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Have you ever ate that bread? We're going to offer you a different bread this morning, but have you ever eaten the bread of anxious toil? It's exhausting. For he gives to his beloved sleep. We're restless because we've not learned the secret. Sinclair Ferguson, who used to be my pastor, uh, at First Presbyterian uh, downtown, uh, wrote a book called Maturity. He's just producing books like crazy now that he's retired. Uh, and, and in his book on maturity, he has this little sort of throwaway section on contentment. And he says this, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord, to be totally at His disposal in the place He appoints at the time He chooses with the provisions he is pleased to make. Christian contentment is learned by me saying, Lord, I'm completely yours and you're, you're everything to me. Do whatever you want. Because that's actually what makes me happiest and holiest, which also, by the way, makes me happy. And he goes on to talk about how the fruit of contentment is grown best in hardship. And so he says, in fact, it should be obvious to us that real spiritual contentment in the Lord 
can grow only under circumstances that produce discontentedness. Some of us actually spend our whole lives putting walls around our world, trying to protect ourselves from pain, minimize pain, and maximize pleasure. That's what we're trying to do with our entire world. And, and what Ferguson, and I think what Paul is pointing to, is the reality that the situation that can most likely produce discontentedness is the very one that the Lord is saying, I've put you in so you would learn contentedness. That's how the Lord works. Contentment is the fruit of hardship, the fruit of being in Christ in the midst of hardship. Maybe actually the Lord's given you some hardship lately. And I don't want to minimize or make light of that as if it's easy to navigate. But what is true behind that is that he is wanting to grow you in finding your contentment in him. And that actually is what we really want. We've, we've lost a lot in the last couple of years, I think. We've lost certain aspects of our freedoms, or we've felt that at least at certain times. We've lost certain aspects of budgets in churches and in businesses. We've lost members to our churches. We've lost loved ones. But what have we gained in the midst of all of that loss? What's been the constant in the midst of all that loss? And I hope we don't push past this and miss it because we're getting back to things. What, what has been the constant? Christ has been the constant. The Emmanuel principle has been true. Old theologians refer to so much of the Old Testament as the Emmanuel principle, that promise, what we call the covenant, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And it's proved in the Lord Jesus who actually comes and is with us as Emmanuel. That's been our constant. He has never left us. He has never forsaken us. He's been our constant. And he wants to teach us contentment if we'll listen, if we'll learn, if we'll apply that truth. I think that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want a life motto as a Christian, what's my life for? How should I live my life? Godliness with contentment. That's the gain. The world says, do whatever you want with a lot of finances. That's the gain. Make a lot of money and do whatever you want. That'll make you happy. And the scripture says, no, to be in Christ Jesus and then to be growing in Christ Jesus in godliness while being content in that reality, that's gain. That's the gain that you and I need in our lives. So Paul says, I can do all things in him who strengthens me, even learn the secret of contentment. And he really, in the Greek, if we were to read it in its, in its proper setting, it would almost come to us as a question. As if Paul is saying, I have learned in every situation, in abundance and in need, the secret of contentment in Christ Jesus. Have you learned the secret? And so Fanny Crosby's hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, I think says it well. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my God? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. That's the secret. Let's pray. Gracious God, most holy heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us.
We thank you that you've given your son for us. We thank you that in him we have everything we need for life and godliness and for contentment. And we confess that we struggle to be contented people in Christ. And we think that a lot of other things would make us content and happy. Well, we pray that by your grace this morning afresh, we would learn the secret that to be in Christ is to be everything and to have everything forever. In Jesus' name, amen.